Touching and moving or what? <laughs> Any biologists out there who appreciated the uh, scientific perspective on moms? Great. So today's message is not specifically for moms, but it really is impressed upon me that moms are desperately needed in order to help us learn how to do what this text says that Sherry read for us from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. We're in that, if you're new or you're visiting today, we've been going through 1 Peter as a series and looking at standing firm in grace as the theme of 1 Peter. And so what Peter's been doing since about uh, verse 11 of chapter 2 is talking about how are Christians to live in a world that is hostile or not friendly territory for the Christian faith. So how are Christians to live in a world that may tolerate religion, that may tolerate Jesus if he's kept as a safe religious figure or a good man or a good teacher, but as he's announced as Savior for the world, uh, that doesn't go over very well. And so we're rejected as bigoted and foolish and to be despised. How do we live in light of that in a world that that is the default mode? And we need to stand firm in grace is what Peter says. He says that at the very end of the letter so we know that what he's talking about. How do you stand firm in grace? So in talking about how we live in that life day to day, how do we display uh, the good news of the gospel in day to day? And so when Peter says at the beginning of that text in 1 Peter 3 verse 8, finally, that means to sum up what he's been saying since verse 11 of chapter 2 up to this point, and what he's been saying in this section as those who God has called as his people, Jesus' people, Christians, so that they are sojourners and exiles in the world because that is what his salvation has done to us. It's made us not natural citizens of this world. Christians are to abstain from fleshly passions, he says back in verse 11 of chapter 2, and keep good conduct before the unbelieving world. And so Peter says, I'm not going to leave it to you guess what I'm talking about. He gives specific examples of that. And he did that in talking about how we submit to governing authorities, how we submit to masters or employers, and wives submitting to husbands and husbands loving their wives. So now Peter says in general terms, how do you respond, how how all of us ought to respond, respond in every situation as believers, as the church community, and in the world. So verse 8 He talks about in the church community, how are we to live before a watching world? So the world needs to see us live out these five things that he mentions in verse 8. And we really need moms to to teach us how to do these things because moms encounter these things all the time. How do you teach? How do you model? So Peter lists five qualities that should be true of the church, Christians in one another, life together. Uh, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And that word brotherly love, the way that the, the, uh, the verbiage is set up, makes it really obvious that brotherly love is the key, uh, the, the key term, the key phrase, the key concept that he's explaining in all of this. So the first thing he talks about is to have unity of mind or to be like-minded. Uh, some translations say to be harmonious. In other words, be united and focusing on, at Harvest we would say, say, keeping the main thing the main thing, making disciples through gospel-centered mission, growth, and community. So keeping the main things united in purpose together. In other words, it should be very obvious that as believers, as, as communities of believers that hang out together in churches, 
We are to, it's to be obvious that we are for one another. To be harmonious or to be united in mind doesn't mean that we all think precisely alike, but on the main things we're united and we are for one another. So that's a good thing. And then uh, have sympathy. So to have sympathy means believers are to care deeply about the needs, joys, and sorrows of others. And again, we can't do that unless we understand the needs and sorrows that our brothers and sisters in Christ are going through. And to be able to actually do that, we are to enter into the experience and the feelings of our Christian brothers and sisters. And then this third uh, term, have brotherly love. Again, that's the key concept that this whole thing revolves around. We are a family. Church is primarily a family, whether big or small. Uh, in size, we, the church is designed to be a, a modeled on a family model. Not corporate, not business, uh, not entertainment or anything else, but family. And so, in other words, we are to love each other as brothers and sisters. And as moms, you know how joyful it is when your kids actually love one another. I mean, it's great when that happens, right? It's like you're, it, the highest joy you can have is when your kids love one, not when they conspire against you, but when they love one another. And, and so uh, each of these expresses ways that we are to love one another, have unity of mind, be sympathetic, and then fourthly, have a tender heart. Or in other words, be compassionate and tender-hearted toward one another. That's very similar to the second point, have sympathy. So he's very big, love, sympathy, tender heart. Again, this is for the world to see that this really works, that Christianity, that being in Christ, really causes us to love one another. Uh, in fact, in John's, gospel, or John's letter, he said, we know that we have passed out of death into life when we love the brothers. And so this is not a marginal, it's a very central uh, quality that we are to expect is going to be lived out among us. So we're, to have a tender heart means to feel deeply and mercifully toward our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then the fifth thing is to have a humble heart, be humble, have a humble mind, to be humble toward each other, have humble attitudes toward each other. So in other words, that, that tricky business of putting others' needs ahead of ourselves. Isn't that difficult to do? I mean, it's easy to talk about in church, but to do it is, is a challenge. In other words, take the lower place. Serve others. Don't expect others to serve you. So how can we experience these, both giving and receiving these five things together, loving one another as brothers and sisters, tender heart, unity of mind, sympathy? We, we, we can share some of it on Sunday morning. Hopefully we're experiencing some of that as we're here for a couple hours on Sunday morning. But it's got to come uh, on a week-by-week basis, so we... We gather together in community groups, and it's a major reason Christ has appointed that his church gathers together for sharing his word, fellowship, communion, prayer, and serving in mission together, is that we experience these things in our life together as, as believers. And that is a testimony to the world that it, Jesus is real. So how we live life together. And then in verse 9, Peter starts talking about how we are to live toward people who are not Christians in the world. So he's summarizing uh, how we are to live as his people, sojourners and exiles toward unbelievers. So under persecution and suffering inflicted by others, the temptation would be to repay evil with evil, right? Uh, To repay reviling for reviling. That's what he says in verse 9. Don't, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. 
So the temptation is when you are afflicted by somebody to afflict them right back. I mean, everybody knows that, right? Unless this is an exceptionally holy group that's never encountered that before. You wouldn't be like the story of a mother who heard her seven-year-old son screaming. She runs into the next room to see what's wrong and discovers her two-year-old daughter pulling his hair. And the mother gets the hand of the baby unclenched and says, you have to overlook this because she's too little to know what it feels like to have your hair pulled. So she goes back to doing her motherly business, and then she suddenly hears the little girl screaming, runs back in the room, and says, what happened? And the boy answered, of course, she knows what it feels like now. (laughs) So we want justice, and we want it now, right? And moms get to experience that a lot, justice being carried out in the hands of children. So when we do fire back with words of counterattack, that angry email, those nasty words, uh, sometimes even physical, physically damaging another person or their property, in return for evil that they have spoken or done to us, we are not like Jesus. Because, as we've seen earlier in chapter 2, when Jesus was reviled, this is 2.23, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But instead, we are to, to, on the contrary, Peter says, bless. Instead of returning evil for evil or reviling, bless them. Now, to bless those who have done evil to us means to do this. It means to ask that God show his grace and favor to those who have done us wrong. To ask that God show his grace and favor to those who have done us wrong. And so this is what Jesus did. And so if we're to be like Jesus, we are rather than to retaliate, but we are to bless. And so how could Jesus do that as a clue to how we might do it? Well, uh, we read earlier in chapter 2 that Jesus continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. It's not that there's no justice at all. God will judge justly. We just entrust our case to him. So do we trust God to do justice on his terms and on his time, in his timing? That's usually the challenge for us. Many of us might say, well, yeah, I trust that God will do justice. It's just that the timing factor is not quick enough for me. And Jesus bore the cost and the penalty for our sins in uh, waiting for God to do justice. He took the just uh, penalty against us upon himself and provided his enemies, that was us, all of us were naturally his enemies, with the greatest blessing possible, and that is taking all the punishment for our sins. So Jesus sets the bar impossibly high for us, but he is an example, as Peter says, and we are to follow in his steps. And so Peter says back in this text, For to this you are called, don't repay evil for evil, don't revile for revile, but on the contrary bless, for to this you are called. Meaning, in our very call to salvation in Christ, we are not to return evil for evil, but instead to bless. It's in our blood. It's in our spiritual DNA to do this. It's what Jesus saved us to. He didn't just save us to get us out of trouble. He saved us in order to unite us to him and to be like him in this world. And it's the way, it's, it's what God has done for us. God blessing those with eternal life who his whose sins his son suffered and died for, sets the model and unites us to the very character of Christ in order that we would do the same thing. And in fact, he goes on and says, to this you were called, again, we were called to not return evil, but to bless, 
that you may obtain a blessing. Now, what is Peter saying? Is he saying that we bless those who do evil against us or speak evil about us, that God will return a blessing to us in this life? Well, the word obtain, that you may obtain a blessing, is the word that's also translated inherit. And so back in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, Peter says, according to God's great mercy, he has called us to be, caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So what he's saying is this is the type of life we live as those who are going to inherit the full blessing of the glory to come. And so the blessing that we inherit is the blessing of that incorruptible glory we will receive in heaven in the fulfillment of our salvation. So do we just coast into heaven and receive this blessing? The people that Peter is writing to know they're not coasting. They're, they're being persecuted. They're suffering. And so how could God preserve them for this inheritance? And in chapter 1, verses, uh, verse 5, we see that We are, by God's power, being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is guarding them, and he's guarding us by his power, through faith for final salvation. We're going to get there, but it's through faith, and God is guarding us by his power through faith. So what threatens our faith? Lots of things threaten our faith. But in particular, in the context of this letter, suffering and struggles with obedience threaten our faith. When I'm being uh, persecuted, when I'm suffering at the hands of others, that threatens my faith. When I'm struggling to obey and, and I don't want to obey God, that threatens my faith. And so I need to, this promise and this uh, focus. This is what God is doing, it's preserving me for final and full salvation by faith. And so in verse 7 of chapter 1, Peter says that the tested genuineness of our faith that's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's, the, here's what I'm getting at. God is testing, he's proving the genuineness of my faith now in preparation for glory later. So that's what Peter's saying in verse 9 of chapter 3, back to our main text. This you were called that you may obtain or that you may inherit a blessing. The life expression of our faith is that we bless those who persecute us because that is how Christ saved us, and so that is how we respond to others. It's a betrayal of our faith to say, well, yeah, I I received that from God. I received that from Jesus, him suffering for me, but I'm not going to endure that from others and bless others. And so uh, this does not mean that we earn or merit the blessing, the blessing being eternal life, It means if we have truly trusted in Christ, we are guarded by God's power through faith. And as we face tests of faith like people insulting us, we will, however, imperfectly bless others as Christ has blessed us. Sometimes just one little insult can really set us off. It's amazing how fragile our sanctification is, isn't it? How easily we get thrown off track by one uh, nasty comment or one wrong email or one bad move or one mistake on the highway. Driving. So what is an example of blessing others who do evil against us? Well, an example of what this does not look like, we, uh, my wife and I learned that our hometown, maybe you heard of this on the news, not our hometown, but where we moved, where we moved from, Port Angeles, Washington. We lived there for 13 years before moving here four years ago. 
there was a guy who was irate with his neighbors, and he drove a bulldozer skidder, a, a big bulldozer-like vehicle that's made for moving logs, into four houses, shoving one off its foundation. These are manufactured homes. And plowing through three others. This was over a property dispute. So he was a little ticked off. So the point is, instead of bulldozing people you believe have wronged you, pray for them. That God would bless them. In fact, that's what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 6. He says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. That's a great way to bless people is to pray for them. Now that's easier said than done. How might you pray for those that abuse you? Well, you pray that God would bless them by turning them to repentance. That's one reason God sent Jesus. Peter says in Acts, in a sermon he was preaching in Acts, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, this week I I was reading a blog, and the blog was about efforts to pass laws permitting girls as young as 15 or even younger to get contraceptives over the counter without parental consent. And that kind of made me mad. And But what made me madder is the uh, comment that was after the blog by a guy who obviously had not read or taken into any of the account of the content of the the blog about this and just uh, called the, the writer of the blog a profane name. So what did I do when I read that comment? Well, I didn't pray for him. I called him a name in my mind. Uh, it was actually a phrase, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a curse phrase, but it was an uncomplimentary phrase in my mind. And as I was preparing this message, I came across this, and I thought, I better get this right. So I got it right, prayed for the guy, and repented of my sin. In retaliating, he ne- he'll never know. I'm not going to write him and tell him I did this, but... but it just shows me how easy it is to not do this, to pray for those who tick us off. It, imagine if that would became our default response every time we were wrong, to pray for somebody. I found praying on the National Day of Prayer, I don't agree with a lot of political decisions that are made. And praying for people on the National Day of Prayer just made me realize how much I come up short in praying for those with whom I disagree. So this is not, you know, easy to do. And... And I'm surprised how often I don't do it myself. So uh, what if we chose to bless those not only who, who treat us wrongly, but people we just don't like? Pray for people you don't like. Uh, pray for people that you're jealous of. Ask that God would really bless them even more than he has. And repent of your jealousy. Pray uh, the people, for people with whom you disagree, like the example I just gave. Okay, well, let's move off of that. It's too convicting. Uh, verse 10. So Peter says, for, at the beginning of verse 10, for whoever desires to love life. And he's quoting from Psalm 34. We had Psalm 34 read because Peter loves that psalm because it's about God being faithful to his persecuted people just as Peter's letter is to God being faithful to his persecuted people. He says, anyone who desires to love life and see good days should keep from speaking evil and deceit. So what does Peter mean by loving life and seeing good days? In the context of the New Testament and this letter and the trajectory of Scripture, he's talking not just about this life, he's talking about eternal life. That's very obviously what Peter is talking about when you follow his reasoning throughout this whole letter. If you really love and you are living for and value eternal life, then you will 
Um, keep from speaking evil and deceit. It's Peter keeps placing our faith focus for joy and peace and hope for this life and the final fulfillment of our salvation to come. And it doesn't mean that we don't get blessings in this life based upon our eternal life focus. It's just that we are putting our far more of our focus on the life to come than in this life. And with that, there are blessings that come. So Peter's saying, if you are one who wants to experience the life of the age to come, we get a foretaste now, fulfillment later, then you show that what you really long for that life by shunning evil and deceptive speech. Now an example is there are many people in prison who profess to have changed for the better. Uh, lots of people get religion when they're in prison, when they're in jail. And they'll say things like, hey, I'm a new person, I've been reformed, I've found God, I've, I've got religion, I'm a new, uh, I want to love freedom and see good days outside these prison walls. I will be good, I, I can do it, I can do this, I'm changed, I'm a changed person. But if that prisoner frequently resorts to speaking evil and deceiving words every time others mistreat him or her, uh, and he doesn't get his way, then he shows he really isn't changed and that he is not fit for a life of freedom. So this is how it is with us. If we really value the fullness of the freedom from sin that's coming with the fulfillment of our eternal life, then we will say, I want to live that life now. No, we're not going to do it perfectly, but I keep turning from evil and turning toward uh, what what pleases God. So if we get how greatly God has blessed us through Christ, that he suffered abuse without retaliating in evil speech or deception... We can't hardly get through a day or a week without doing that. Jesus did that perfectly his whole life. Yes, he rebuked evil, but he didn't retaliate with evil speech or deception. Also that he would suffer and die in our place that we might receive his righteousness and eternal life as a gift. That is the greatest blessing. Do we get that's the greatest blessing we can possibly have? That's what Peter keeps calling us to, is to recognize this is the greatest blessing ever. Eternal life, forgiveness of sins when I didn't deserve it. I need to have that refreshed before my heart, memory again and again, and then living in light of that. That's what Peter's saying. And how can we think that we only bless those who bless us and claim to follow Christ? It's really easy, like Jesus says in Luke 6, it's really easy to bless those who bless you. And then in verse 11, Peter expounds a little bit further the same point. The one who trusts Christ for eternal life who values that life, who longs for it, who wants it, must turn away from evil and not make excuses for doing evil because evil is being done to us. Again, those of us who truly have eternal life sadly still do some evil things. So we haven't got perfection in this life yet. We won't have perfection in this life. But we don't give ourselves over to evil. We turn from evil if we're really followers of Jesus. So God has not called us to merely stop doing evil, but to do good. That's what he says. Uh, Let him turn away from evil and do good. So often the Christian life is described in terms of what we don't do. Well, I'm a Christian, so that means I don't do this, I don't do that, don't do other things. And that's partly true. To be sure, as Christians, uh, we should be known for not going after, going along with, or giving into sinful practices. But even more... What Peter says is we should be known for doing good. And that's a big theme for Peter. Keeps saying that again and again and again. 
that we should be known for doing good. That is how we live in a world that is opposed to us. Rather than retaliating, we keep doing good. Hey, back at you. I'm going to keep doing good. Uh, that's, oh, I love Paul's statement in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but what? But overcome evil with good. Let's try that again. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That should be a hip pocket verse that we are always coming back to. How do I deal with this evil that is being done to me or perceived evil that being done to me? Don't retaliate evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the rule. That's the Christ faith obeying rule. And here Peter gives a specific way that we are to do good. He says we are to seek peace and pursue it. Our life pattern should be one of seeking peace with people. And when that fails, which it does frequently, then we keep pursuing peace as far as we can. Where there is hostility and conflict, anybody had any hostility and conflict lately? Nobody? Wow, you are really blessed. Incredible. Well, then, to the people that you know who are going through hostility and conflict, tell them this. Keep seeking peace and pursuing it as far as you can. And where uh, that does raise its ugly head, focus on dealing with your own sin and part in the conflict. Wait a minute, I'm an innocent victim. Deal with your own sin and part in the conflict, whatever it is. If if yours is 3% of the problem, you major on that 3%. That's like the log in your eye. You should see that as a bigger part of the problem than theirs. And don't be a peace breaker. On the other hand, don't be a peace faker, right? Don't be a peace breaker. Don't be a peace faker. This is not talking about false peace where it really isn't there, but being a peacemaker. Jesus said, if you are a peacemaker, as far as it lies with you, Jesus said in Matthew 5, you shall be called the sons of God. Seeking and pursuing peace is a major identifying characteristic of those who belong to Jesus. It says in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with people who are easy to get along with. Strive for peace with people who do good to you. Yeah. With everyone. Strive. Note, he, he uses the word strive. He's not saying you're always going to be successful. Sometimes it's humanly impossible, but from as far as it concerns you, that's what Paul says in 12.18, if possible, so they do give these biblical qualifiers, if possible, as far as it depends upon you, that's the key, live peaceably with all. If there is going to be unresolved conflict and hostility, let it not be on your account. You be the peacemaker as far as you can. That's what it says. In this last verse, in verse 12, still quoting from Psalm 34, Peter just loves Psalm 34. Peter lays in bold contrast the difference between the one who returns evil for evil, who speaks evil, and the one who blesses. So there's a big difference between if you're an e- one who returns evil for evil, who speaks deception, who speaks evil, or if you're one who, instead of doing that, blesses and turns from evil, there's a big difference between those two groups of people. And once again, he, he introduces this with the word for. For the difference between those who do evil and those who turn away from evil and those who do good, between those who speak evil and deceit, is that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. So the eyes of the Lord are on us. The greatest thing that we have going for us 
is not that we in and of ourselves who are in Christ are better than anybody else. It's that God graciously decided to show us his favor. That's the only reason I ever decided to even turn to Christ is God graciously decided to show me his favor and his grace. He set his grace upon me. Otherwise, I would never be called righteous. The only reason I'm called righteous is because of what Christ has provided and what he has done, and that's completely by his grace. So that's what this phrase means. The eyes of the Lord being on someone means his grace, his favor is on them. And if I have that true of me, that means I have received the gift of righteousness from Christ, and I've received that, and that my first acceptable prayer to God was that. God, I recognize that I am not a peacemaker. I recognize I am not a blesser. I recognize I am one who would rather do evil than turn from evil. And so I need the righteousness that only you can give me through Jesus Christ, your son. And so that introduces you to a prayer life that continues through the rest of your life. And so that is these two distinctions, God's grace being upon us as Christians and that we pray, not as a religious uh, act that I go through, not just saying my prayers because I'm supposed to, but because I'm desperate. Anybody desperate for God? Anybody recognize how much you need God? Because why do the righteous pray? Not because they just, oh, I've got a prayer, I've got to do my prayers, but because they're desperate, because they suffer the pain of evil and reviling. Instead of retaliating, they turn to prayer. They struggle not to return evil for evil and instead to bless. And we need to pray in order to not return evil for evil and to bless. We need God's grace to do that. And we groan under the challenges that we face in turning away from evil. Ourselves. Man, even things that we thought we long got over, sometimes we fall back into them. I need to constantly be praying for God to refresh, renew His gracious work in my life because my, the gravitational pull of the remaining sin within me is always pulling me back toward evil and not blessing. Always. And so I need, I can't, the Christian life cannot be a coast. If you coast, you're, you're going to wreck. You need to be one who's desperately seeking the Lord all times. So they pray and seek God's favor and strength to even want to bless. I mean, okay, I know I'm supposed to, but to even want to do that, I need God's grace to help me to want to and to do good and to seek peace and as well as to actually do good and to seek peace. So the major difference between the righteous and the evil is the righteous, we don't trust ourselves as far as we can throw ourselves. We do not put our trust in ourselves. We seek God constantly. And we don't trust anything in this world to enable us to live righteously and to bless instead of returning evil for evil. We recognize that God answers this prayer. That's why Jesus was so good to give us these, this prayer checklist that we call the Lord's Prayer, right? He answers this prayer. He will always answer it. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Daily, hourly, I need to pray that if I get the struggle that I'm in. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the last sentence in this text. God opposes those who do evil, those who are not repentant, those who are not seeking his grace, That's what it means to do evil. He opposes them and will bring just judgment against them. 
They will not inherit the blessing of eternal life, but punishment. But we who have only by God's grace avoided that end and have eternal life as an inheritance, we can trust God, pray and do good, knowing he called us to bless others, that we pray that we may inherit eternal life in full. It will be worth trusting God in our pain now for eternal gain. And we need this model before us, and that's why we need godly mothers. Godly mothers are very key in instructing us in living this way. It's easy to, to do it, talk about it in a sermon. We could do it in a Sunday school class. But where we really need it is in the day in, day out of everyday life. So we need mothers, grandmothers, and motherly mentors who model and teach us these things because mothers don't get blessed a lot. And they get evil done to them. And they feel like sometimes doing evil back. And so mothers, actually, there's not a perfect mother who ever was born. So mothers also fall into sin, and they get to model repenting. So moms get to be God's instruments of putting on display what this message is all about, to love fellow Christians and bless others. Moms can teach us that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for rescuing us from our evilness. For instead of what we deserved, blessing us, your son Jesus so incredibly did that for us by bearing our sins in his body on the cross. And he so victoriously displayed that he provides the life for us that we are going to inherit by being resurrected from the dead. And at the same time, Father, he has given us the instruction we need to, to demonstrate, I really believe, I long for that eternal life. I long for that coming day when there will be no more sin battles, or where there will be only blessing and not evil. Help us, Father, forgive us for the many ways, big and small, that we revile for reviling, that we retaliate, we do evil for evil instead of blessing. So natural, Father, for us to not do, to not bless others. Would you help us? You who have blessed us to be a blessing, you have, who have fulfilled the whole word, that blessing in eternal life, in righteousness in Christ, that's what that word means, has come to mean in Scripture. So thank you for blessing us so richly. May we be recognized as a community that blesses others. Amen.